Welcome to the seven and a half floor of the Merton Flummer Building. As you'll now be spending your workday here, it is important that you learn a bit about the history of this famous floor. Welcome to Malkovich Malkovich Minute Minute, the daily podcast in which we enjoy the pleasures of an uneasy love, abandon ourselves to fornication and hope to be spared God's severity as we discuss the film Being John Malkovich one minute at a time. I am your host, Austin Pryor, and joining me this week from the Train Spotting Minute by Minute podcast is Mr. Ben Bostock. Whoa, oh God, it's like in the film. <laughs> Welcome. Hello, good evening, good morning. Uh, I, which uh, which person's head am I in this week? I, I, it's it's very hard to tell, and we've been uh, very uh, non-committal about that particular question. Just the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, just how how sticky is it for you in here? Oh, to an uncomfortable trigger warningly degree, it's very sticky. Okay. Um, okay. If I can pick the celebrity whose head I can be, and that would be uh, that'd be great. <laughs> you know, if I could have multiple choice, that'd be that'd be nice. Okay, who's your first choice? Um, my first choice would be uh, Dave the Animal Perry, former co-host of Channel 4's Games Master. Uh, no particular reason. I'm me. just I'm just curious what he's up to now. Does he qualify as a celebrity? Uh, well, he was for about four minutes in 1995, <laughs> so <laughs> that's smaller than I've done. Wow, that is like not even Dominic Diamond. You're going a much <laughs> like an even deeper cut. No, I'm going for the B yeah. sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's also very good at Super Mario 64. Oh, so you know. Good. Uh, <laughs> So, so you could you could watch him play it, or or if you got really good, you could kind of puppeteer him play could, it and see yeah. if, see if you could do as good with his fingers as he can. I could sort of subtly manipulate his life so that he eventually ends up, um, you know, basically, you know, ending up a fairly low rate mid level YouTube channel, which yeah. I think would be the highest sort of point of attainability on, on that in that regard. That's, that's all. That's all you can hope. That's all. That's all. For, really, any of us can hope for. Yes. In today's uh, crowded media landscape. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Today we discuss minute six of being John Malkovich. Minute six starts with an establishing shot of the Abelard and Eloise poster, and ends one minute later with Craig's best tortured artist facial expression. I'm really glad that you said the name of the. Um, the letters or the play he was performing because when I was looking it up I had no idea whatsoever how to pronounce it so I'm really yeah. happy you said that now <laughs> so well can, uh, that wasn't that. a bit uh, that wasn't that was kind of a rough pronunciation I mean he, his name is is uh Abelard so it's it's like Pierre Abelard and, and her name is yeah. um is Eloise um it's t- kind of tempting to say Heloise because we were that's we how I was saying Louise, it. but yeah. it's lo it's Louise so Eloise Eloise um and her, I mean, her surname, it's not really a surname. It's like she's called after the place name. Uh, so Argentui um, is, uh, yeah, so she's Eloise d'Argentui. Um, that is my best, best very good. guess at that. It's not very good. I, get, I listened to it so many times uh, the other French, day. So and then you'll just, probably do a better job than me. <laughs> <laughs> and then I just I just decided to give up and not do it. But then we, we the, the, the subject came up, so I kind of couldn't resist. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so this, as a lot of uh, viewers might not know, this is, uh, a lot of listeners rather, might not know, this is a real... Uh, story. These are real characters mm. here. Uh, th- these are real figures from history, I should say. And um, so, d- did your uh, research turn up anything interesting? Uh, 
Um, well, I just I, I had a look over the basic sort of story and the, the impression I got from it in terms of its sort of relevance to the, the the plot at large or the themes at large rather is that it seems to be and you can correct me if I'm if I'm wrong in any of this but it seems to be a tale of a very sort of um, not unrecreated love because they were they were sort of in yeah. love but a, a kind of a very sort of doomed romance a kind of romance that probably you know never really stood much of a chance despite the sort of passion between the the two of them rather this sort absolutely of weird so it's love. like a, a tristan and isolde or romeo and juliet or whatever you know what i mean a tragic romance but a not but a but a true life one yeah and um so you're talking about uh like this was in the 1130s this was all happened or, or probably no 1110s or 1120s i mean this is this yeah. is really really a long time ago and very different times so pierre uh, pierre rabelard was a, a medieval french philosopher and um uh eloise was his student um and he was 20 years older than her so you know uh so that not, dynamic going on. not so yeah is that kind of <laughs> dynamic going on and he was her teacher and all of that but uh, different times uh, you know cancelled but it seems to be that although he in his memoirs described it as a seduction and and talked about what a you know smooth lover he was and everything but she in her uh, accounts uh, describes it more of a meeting of minds uh, uh that be, that became a physical love and um, it's possible that the truth probably lies in a combination of somewhere between the two i'd say yeah either like, he's like Mac Daddy, so <laughs> such a, a a stud that he was able to that he was able to seduce her and make it seem like it was a meeting of minds, or he just you know rewrote history and kind of uh, yeah. You could probably say to... that about a lot of relationships, even relationships from the twenty first century as opposed to the eleventh century and anything mm. in between. There's always going to be, especially in in the sort of first flushes of it. Uh, maybe this is just my personal hang-ups and demons coming to fore, but I think there's always going to be a slight sort of difference between how the, the two people view it. And so yeah. I can definitely see that's I can definitely see that sort of um, you know, and it, it's very interesting as well. Like that story now will probably be uh, um, a thousand years old. Uh, yeah, nearly nine hundred. Well, yeah, more or less. But it's interesting how that sort of that sort of carries over into into now. And, and uh, like I was saying, going back to sort of how it ties into this overall this overall work it sort of works as a very good bit of foreshadowing this idea of like um you know it's because would you would you say that being john malkovich is kind of in its own way a love story not not very conventional one well i mean certainly it's a story of um i i i find craig's love for maxine I'm not convinced that he's in love with her. I find it very no. unconvincing. I don't find it. I find it a convincing story. Don't get me wrong, but just from the point of view of like, that's not love. He's well, he's talked himself into being in love. Exactly. He? he just, it's more of a lust. Yeah. Yeah, and it's an obsession. And the more she uh, expresses disinterest, the more he's hung up on her. Um, there's he's he's dragging a lot of baggage into this thing you know it's not it's not uh it's it's not all her you know i think a lot of us can relate to that that feeling as well of sort of being so so tied up in in someone else that you sort of lose track of what the actual emotion is and what your actual emotion is and as well i think this this sort of minute that that we're highlighting is also an interesting thing because um 
you mentioned at the, at the beginning earlier the sort of that that tight close up of uh, of John Cusack as he's really sort of ingrained in his work and mm. ingrained in his performance, and um, I think that sort of is goes to tell you what he's going to be like for the rest of the film. Basically, someone who is trapped so much in his own world, even when he technically, literally and figuratively enters someone else's world, yeah, he's still trapped in his own world. He can never, um, he can never escape from it even when he literally escapes from his own head yeah well he he he's still there and a sort of this whole street performance is sort of emblematic of that I, i'd say i mean the old saying wherever you go there you are you know exactly yes. uh, it applies you can't you can't uh, you can't escape yourself that could have been the tagline uh, yeah. that's that sort of what they, i know we may, maybe jumping ahead a little but i, I when i watched the film for the first time in ages for doing this mm. and that's the sort of the impression I got, which, you know, which I think the great, a lot of the great films, they can be as, um, even the ones that are as surreal and out there and bonkers as, as this one. I think if there's some sort of human element tied down to it, um, it's, it's easily relatable. And I think that idea of like, because I think everyone has wanted to feel like that at some point, haven't they? Yeah. Every, every single person in the world has, has imagined being someone else. Um, but, and probably more than likely someone famous. Um, but that, that I feel like that's not really like the the idea isn't that people wanting to be famous. It's more the idea of people wanting to get away from themselves and in a weird way trying to find themselves by not being themselves. It's this weird contradiction going on. We are we are strange beasts. <laughs> yes, we are. Um, and uh, I also with this minute as well. I also wanted to. This might be stepping outside of the um, of the sort of parameter oh, a bit, but I know. Oh, go on. Well, the film, it looks, the actual, like, the, for a film from 1999, I know 1999 is not that long ago, Yeah, it looks really good. I'm assuming, like, um, is it Criterion remastered it, didn't they? Uh, yeah, Criterion, yeah, remastered it a few years ago. Looks fantastic. It really does. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, these outdoor scenes here are more contrasty than a lot of the rest of the film, which is quite um, drab intentionally, you know, yeah. the, the seven and a half floor um the, claustrophobic the of those scenes yeah, yeah yeah um lance accord is a director of photography and he had worked with uh spike jones previously on you know uh, ads and and uh, music, music videos, videos. Yeah. yeah yeah and he does great work here but it was the guidelines that he was working to were very much you know naturalistic you know nearly documentary style um uh, filming to offset the kind of ludicrous and uh, surreal elements of the script you know what yeah I mean? you don't you don't want to lean into those you want to you know I think counterbalance what, them yeah that, that's i think that goes back to what i was i was saying about how it also kind of no matter how weird and wacky and crazy the, the film gets as it will as it will get later on as we get more more into the sort of convoluted going inside someone's head while in someone's head and yeah all the messing up all those japes um as it because there's something real and something human tied to it. And I think that like those New York street scenes, they look fantastic. Like they look so like I've never been to, I've never been to New York. This is just a uh, casual observer's impression of what New York might be like. Yeah. But it does feel very New York-y to me with the, with the steam coming from the pavements and the sort of the street noise and how, how blue it looks yeah. <laughs> sort of like, uh, you know, every, every, every film from that period has this sort of slightly, sort of detached 
dusk, it's got that um, great sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? Sort of dusk quality where it's not quite day, it's not quite night. Mm, it's this mm. weird sort of blueness that seems to happen for about an hour in the day. And uh, I think dusk is probably the word I'm looking for. But um, but yeah, it's, that's that's my, my takeaway from this minute was just sort of looking at how sort of, I don't know, lived in it looks. I think yeah. that goes back to the um, to the, the DOP you were talking about. That, that, a lot That's of that will probably yeah. come down to that, definitely. In shaping yeah. that look, you know. Uh, yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great looking film in a uh, in a in a very understated way that nobody's going to walk out of this film and talk about the stunning cinematography and the you know vis- a visual delight. It's not going to get those kind of reviews. Yeah. But the the look of it serves the story and the tone really well throughout, and there is some gorgeous photography, especially you know taking on the challenges of like in the first five minutes uh of the like close-up photography of the marionettes, uh, the, the marionettes at yeah. a kind of giving them a human scale you know um which is great that, that I was, that's another thing i noticed as well yeah like when you there's there's certain points where it's almost like the the, the photography on the marionette work is so good you almost well you don't fully forget but you sort of get lost in the facts of this little story and you almost sort of forget that like you're you're watching wooden figures I mean, I know this is yeah, a way. Yeah, well, that's that's the uh, the illusion of life. Uh, that's the combination of you know, it, it it's uh, Philip Huber's fantastic uh, puppetry work, uh, really well supported and complemented by the way it's shot, the way it's edited. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's beautiful. And uh, I suppose this is a, this might be a, a quite an, an odd comparison to make. But I guess it ties back into it because this this is sort of the first minute where we get to see him do his thing in public as it were or yeah. in action but it's sort of like when you watch something like um when you're a kid and you watch something like thunderbirds or jerry yeah. anderson stuff and you don't really when, when you're a kid you don't think i'm watching a puppet show at least i didn't you, you just think well you you just think you're watching a story yeah yeah or, and it's um you're you're kind of i remember with those shows like because everything was to scale i remember knowing that it was you know false and oh, not, yeah. Yeah. not real and everything but it's hard to kind of picture how yeah. what size everything was and what the real what any of this looked like in the real world you become you become engrossed in it that you can let that fact slide a bit like how sort of the way craig is is almost like obviously he has to watch obviously he's looking down he has to watch his marionettes to make sure it's all working fine but yeah. the way he's looking at it it's almost like he's He's the performer and the audience in a weird sense. Like he's almost yeah. as, as drawn in by his own interpretation of the story as much as he's trying to. Like, do you get what I'm trying to say? It's, it's I get like what you're trying to say, um, and 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 it that that resonates very much with what Philip Huber has said about it. So I don't know if you're aware that I I interviewed uh, Huber, and oh, yeah, so yeah. far on yes, the show yeah. we've played a couple of segments of those. We're going to hear a segment later on, but in a later upcoming segment he'll talk more about his process and what he does, you know, where he puts himself. His perception has to kind of travel down into the puppet, and he needs to see yeah. through the eyes of the puppet. Because I think that that all comes off in the performance of the actual yeah. marionettes themselves. I don't know yeah. if uh, I keep I keep flip flopping between Colin and puppets and marionettes. 
a uh, marionette is a type of puppet. Yeah, it's a subset. So I, yeah, I guess it. I guess it both yeah. works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they are both marionettes and puppets. There you go, yeah. uh, and that's 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 what they have to be called in in today's PC culture. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, and I guess it as well. Maybe again, maybe jumping ahead a little, but I guess it also ties back. This this minute also sort of introduces that theme of um, control that is so prevalent, in, oh, especially, yeah. especially in Craig's character. Where he sort of his whole impetus, I think, with 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 saying earlier how he's he sort of thinks he's in love with Maxine later on, but he's not really. Yeah. He's, probably, he's worked himself up to that, and I think the reason yeah. why he finds her so fascinating is because he can't control her. Like he yeah. can sort he sort of can control uh, Lottie, Lottie, yeah, um, because she's she's quite at this point in the film, the early stages of the film, she's quite sort of passive, isn't she, and quite kind mm. of. You know, she she obviously becomes a little bit more, uh, a little bit more driven and a little bit more sort of sort of bonkers later on. But yeah, yeah. At this at, at this point, she's she's a very passive partner, and I think that that yeah. they're sort of, they've sort of settled into this groove as a couple where they're sort of he. It's easy for him to sort of be the one, even though he's not very assertive. He's still in charge in his own weird, understated way. Yeah, and, um, because he sets the terms. And exactly. Yeah, he's the starving artist and the puppeteer, and that's all. You know, although he does take her advice and go and, and get a job, thankfully, or we wouldn't have a plot to our movie. <laughs> we wouldn't have a film. But it's also a negotiation with Maxine, yeah. where he has nothing she wants, and that's a that's a very weak bargaining position to be in, and it makes people in any kind of bargaining situation if you're opponent or or your co-bargainer or whatever has yeah, uh conquest. Ha- yeah doesn't want anything you have it, it it causes people to you know kind of act out and and make bad decisions and that's what we see here and then until he discovers the portal he doesn't have anything that maxine could be interested in yeah it, 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 it's sort of like this at this at this point in the film he's sort of he's quite he's quite almost I I won't I won't go far as to say maybe not content because he's obviously not content. He wants to he wants people to acknowledge his talent more. He yes, wants to yeah. sort of he he doesn't want to be doing it on the street all his life. But he's sort of happy because he's sort of he's being allowed to do his own his own thing. And I think that that sort of is a is a pretty good piece of acting from uh, from John Cusack in mm. terms of like co- conveying just how sort of he he does he does he's one of those actors where he can do. Quite a lot by not doing very much. He's not one of those actors who has to sort of ham ham it up to the nth degree and you know sort of shout and scream. He can he can yeah he's a, do, he's a confident film, can, performer and he can yeah. pull it out of the bag when he needs to and he can yeah when, especially in the sort of the more comedic scenes later on in the, in all the stuff in the office later on yeah he's very good at sort of conveying that slight confusion but he doesn't he doesn't do the actor thing of that you you might see in other sort of like comedy films, oh, what, what what's going on? You know all that kind yes, of stuff. He's very yeah. he's very understated and very like just just a little look twitch of the eye or the little sort of turn of the head, just sort of like if it was a comic, there'd just be like a tiny little question mark mm, mm. <laughs> above his head at all times. You know. Yes, and there is much to be baffled about in the events in this film, but yeah, right. if they leaned into it and did. Even if they did a realistic amount of bafflement, it would get very tedious because it would be the mm. same note all the time. Yeah, there's there's almost a weird dream logic to it. The fact that yeah. no one is really um, 
bothered. No, no one's really sort of like the reaction that you might have to yeah. telling someone I have a portal into John Malkovich's yeah. head in my office. It's probably not. It's not the reaction that most people would have in in, in this film. No. Like Maxine in particular doesn't seem particularly um, nonplussed by it. No, no, she's she's not bothered, <laughs> and she has no interest in going in. She's the only character who has no interest in going in it. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's another point as well. She we, I think, she only goes in it, I think, when she's being chased by Lottie at the end. Of that's it. right. That's uh, yeah. yeah, and it's only just out of desperation. Yeah, yeah, because being chased by a gun. Yeah. So, so just to clarify the the story of Abelard and, and Eloise, Abelard was a monastic scholar, and this is the time when it was becoming normal for a vow of chastity to be expected, and for uh, monks and and monastic scholars to not uh, be engaged in relationships. So, um, her yeah. uncle, Eloise's uncle, for, forbade their love, but he was also abusive. To her, so Abelard got Heloise sent off to a monastery. Um, Abelard was a was an a, what they call an apologist for women, which is not to do with apologizing; it's to do with kind of advocating, like a proto feminist. Yeah, absolutely. Or? For the era, as probably as feminist as you could get, which is not very. But he established uh, female monasteries, and um, so he sent her to one, really to get her away from this abusive uncle. But then the uncle found out that they were still corresponding and he sent men to Abelard to have him castrated. Oh. The correspondence then continued with them. So so I think what the depiction we're seeing here is from translations of the real-life letters, although I couldn't confirm that with an actual text, so I think maybe... Um, uh, maybe Charlie Kaufman was was uh, taking some liberties and just creating his own wording of these things, but but the probably arranging it to how he sort of wanted yeah. the how he wanted the tone of the scene to go, yeah. but, and, and maybe in terms of how it's going to foreshadow the character, these characters, and yeah, the situation. Yeah. And um, important to note as well that this uh, scene wasn't even written until after principal photography was finished. Oh, they had filmed another scene where Craig doing his street puppeteer shtick was was doing like a, the act that a mime would do where you would yeah. mimic passers-by and do their walk so he started doing people's walks and mannerisms with his marionette oh, right. yeah but it didn't really work um the way they shot it and i've never seen it i've never seen any of the deleted scenes for this movie and that was what was in the script and that's what they shot and it results in a punch in the face for Craig so that's why the next scene works you know <laughs> so this scene was was just written separately to have the same you know to match in and then they got uh, Philip Huber the puppeteer back and this was the last thing they well this is the second last thing they shot but we'll get into that oh so I was just about to ask you was this the, was this the last thing that was technically yeah. Yeah, well, f- well, it was the it was the last thing of any real substance. It was one shot picked up later on, and if you uh, follow us on this journey, one minute at a time, we will get to that eventually. Yes. Okay. So, any other thoughts on uh, minute six? Um. Well, I guess another thing that I wanted to sort of, um, well, an impression I got from the minute as well is that um, I think we've all I think we've all sort of seen um experiences of like um street performers and street artists and yeah. other musicians and um you know i'm where, where, where i'm where i'm from in, in manchester there's, there'd always be 
street stuff going on. I think every city and every town has street stuff going on. Mm. But um, and I think one of the things I always... I used to see this kind of thing every single day, whether it was going to and from work or just going anywhere. You'd always see something going on, whether it was some kind of musician or, you know, like an art thing, or even in, in a lot of cases, you know, extremely um, far-right religious preachers. Yeah. But um, but what, one, one thing I always... Um, took away from that and I think it's the same thing I got from watching um, Craig do his thing is that it's um, and maybe this would be something that would tie more into the next minute but I, I wanted to mention it here as well is that it's even though he sort of has these aspirations of uh, oh I want to be I, I want to be bigger than this I want to be world renowned for my puppetry I don't mm-hmm. just want to be doing it on the street but he's he's one of the performers he does Maybe it's one of the few things to admire because later on there's not a lot to admire no, about no. him as a person. But I think one of the things we can admire about him at this point is that he he really does care about his craft and his art. Absolutely. And I suppose it's um maybe this is a sort of a trope that Charlie Kaufman's very fond of because a lot of his work seems to sort of lean on this sort of meta idea of sort of like like um a film which I'm sure you've touched on previously and we'll probably touch on again, uh, adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh which is which is which is another sort of it's 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 almost like Ch- Charlie Kaufman making a comment on the the act of writing the film almost. Yes. It's sort of like he he's yeah, he wants to be big and famous and world renowned, but he's he's not just he's not cynical about his puppetry. He's not cynical about what he does. He's it's not like he doesn't care about what he does or yeah. just sees it as a means to an end. He really, really cares about this. And I always admired that about when I see when I see street performers because you know, a lot of them, I I'd, I'd say more than half of them aren't doing it to be rich and famous. Or they're not, they're not doing it for recognition. They're doing it because that's what they do. Yeah. They have to do that. And if they're gonna do it out in the street, if they're gonna do it on a stage, if they're gonna do it in an arena it doesn't matter if they're going to do it in their living room. It doesn't matter where they do it. That is something that they they have to do. That that is their calling in life. And I'm I think a that's puppeteer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> that's why I, that's why I thought maybe maybe I should say this in the next minute. But I think it really, uh, but I think it really works here too. And I think this minute conveys that equally well. The um, the the gift and the curse really of the uh, the artist, which I think is something that uh, you know adaptation especially, but Equally, this film as well also sort of runs with that idea of just how far one can go with creativity. And maybe, maybe is there such a thing as being so far enveloped in another world that you you sort of lose you lose your own world or you lose yourself, I guess. Oof. We're getting deep there now. <laughs> Philosophical. On that deep note, I'm afraid uh, I need to warn you that... Um... You know, there's only a kind of a certain finite amount of time I can manage to kind of hold guests in here, and uh, you are about to be oh, you're about spat to sh- out. Shoot me on the bloody turnpike, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So, or or somewhere else. Who knows? Okay, Who knows where you uh, end up? I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll just brace myself and get myself ready for the uh, the pains. And so ends another edition of our little podcast. So for you puppetry fans out there, I'm afraid there's no Philip Huber segment today, but uh, we're doubling up on that tomorrow, so don't worry. Uh, The other thing I wanted to say is that I've been very gratified to find that people have actually been listening to this podcast and and looking at the stats, it would appear that it's not just people I know personally. 
Um, so this is this is great, but podcasts by their nature are an asymmetrical one-way medium. Uh, so one tends to feel as if one is shouting into the void somewhat. So I want to hear from you, whether you know me personally or not. Go to MalkovichMinute.net and um, just drop me a line. You can fill out the contact form, which is equivalent to uh, emailing me at Austin at MalkovichMinute.net or you can click on any of the social links. I'm on Mastodon. I've set up a, a Matrix chat room, which would be really fun to get into. And then, you know, there's Twitter and Instagram, whatever. Uh, but no matter what medium you reach me on, you know, just drop me a line, even if it's just to say, I'm listening to the podcast and I find it tolerable to middling. That's great. So it's MalkovichMinute.net. So Malkovich is M-A-L-K-O-V-I-C-H. Minute is minute. Dot net is dot net. Thank you so much for listening. See you tomorrow.